there's this illustration that I was told, I don't know how long ago this was, it was some point in, in youth ministry, it's a very youth ministry sounding illustration, so just bear with me, but I think it's helpful. If I had told you guys that earlier today I was walking across Columbia and a big truck ran me over, would you believe me? Why not? Because I look fine. (laughs) I'm standing right here. No bruises or anything. I'm all good. Everything's fine. So it's clear, it's, it's obvious that if I told you a truck ran me over, that I'd be lying. Because when a truck runs someone over, you can expect that afterwards they're going to look a lot different. They're not going to look like they looked before the truck hit them. So the gospel is transformative. That's just, the transformed life is the series that we're in. And Paul goes in, he starts this long list of, of little sayings, of little, little things. And whenever you, you read them, you realize that Paul is describing what the transformed life looks like. Now we're getting into the nitty gritty. What does the transformed life look like? And in thinking of this truck illustration, if someone claims to be a Christian, then their life needs to look dramatically different than it did before they trusted in Christ. So you've probably talked to people before that have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. But based on their words, their actions, their behavior, you don't see any evidence. And so in talking about a transformed life, we're going to see what, what's the evidence? What, what do you do? What does God expect for his people to do now that you're living this transformed life? So Romans 12, 9 through 13, here's what it says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So our text begins with Paul saying, let love be genuine. Genuine love is sincere love. Genuine is sincere. This love that he's describing is love without hypocrisy. He's saying when you genuinely love people, you're not going to be acting. There's no play acting There's no ulterior motives with genuine love. Matthew 6, 2 is an example of hypocritical love. Love that is fake. Love that is full of these ulterior motives. Matthew 6, 2 says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So fake love, it's pretending to love others to make yourself look good. It's pretending to love others because you have something in mind that you want, that you think you will get by faking love for other people. I mean, you could show up here Be so friendly, be caring, be gentle in your words, but the motivation might be that you just want recognition for that. You just want people to see you like that. And maybe deep down, you you know, you know that the love that you're showing for people isn't real. You just want to be recognized. You want something out of the way that you're treating other people. Maybe you're really proud of how people see you. So you show this love, this kindness, and it's, and it's just, it's just it's play acting. It's not real. You want to sound the trumpet before you, and you want people to see what you're doing. You want everybody to know that you're doing these things. 
You'll pretend to love people up front, but then you would never go the extra mile for them when no one's eyes are watching. Think about what an actor does. An actor, someone who is hired, who that is their profession, they act. They get a script in the mail or something, and they show up, and they act. They, they become this person. The cameras are rolling, lights, camera, action, and they become this person for the camera. And it becomes this movie, and they get praised for the movie they're in. They're so popular because they played this character. But then, when the lights and the cameras are off, they aren't that person anymore. It's acting. And love that is genuine. It's not play acting. It's not lights, camera, action, all eyes are on me. I'm going to love people so they can see me doing this. Genuine love is loving people because that's what Christ says to do. You love God so much that it overflows with genuine and real love for others. Don't be an actor. Don't, don't love with ulterior motives. Don't love and show love because you want something out of the relationship. Maybe you want something in return for your good deeds. Maybe you're just giving affection because you know that showing affection to somebody somehow will get you something in return. That's selfish. It's not genuine. It's not sincere. That's selfish love because you're more concerned about gaining than giving. Here's just a side note is you can see straight through that, can't you? You ever had somebody who just, you know, you just know it's fake. It's hard to explain, but you can tell. So why is it that sometimes you, you, you try to fool people that way? You know, it's, it's easy to tell. It's not sincere. It's not genuine. You can recognize when someone is being fake towards you. So your love for others must be genuine. Genuine love is sincere. It's without self-centeredness. This is the kind of love that God requires from his people. Genuine love. Let love be genuine. So when you're showing care and concern for others, is it really because you love that person? Is that the only reason? Is it because you care for the person so you're showing love? Or is there something else that you're after? Is it some kind of arrogant game that you're playing? You've got to let love be genuine. And this isn't just describing the kind of love that you should have for others, but this is describing the kind of love that you should have for God. Is your love for God genuine? Is it sincere or are you just putting on a show for others to see? Are you trying to impress someone? Or are you trying to please and glorify God? What's the motivation? I mean, there are people who will raise their hands in worship and, and show this zeal and passion for God, but it's all a facade. It's not real. It's like the, the classic story of the dude who has a crush on a girl, so he shows up to church, and he's all into worship, and he's answering the question, he's amening everything. That's not out of sincere love for God. That's play acting. It's fake. And in this instance, it's because the dude wants to get the girl's attention. But whatever the, whatever the motivation may be, if it's not because you love God, then it's not real. It's not genuine. Loving God with hypocrisy. See, that's also about being more concerned with what God can do for you and what God will give you than for how you can love Him and glorify Him. I mean, certainly there are many wonderful blessings about being a Christian. But if, if the reason that you say you're a Christian is because you're just in it for all of these good things... It's wrong. It's the wrong motivation. I mean, maybe you've heard people say, I gave God a chance and he didn't do anything for me. So that's why I don't believe. Back up. That's so wrong. <laughs> what do you mean you gave God a chance? 
That's starting ground zero from the wrong place, from the wrong motivation. There was no real love for God there. It was all, God, what can you do for me? If you do this for me, then I'll love you. But you know that that love won't even be real because you're only in it because of what God is doing for you, what he's giving you. It's so wrong. The whole motivation there is looking for God to give you what you want instead of understanding that your sins can be forgiven through Christ. I mean, that's why we love God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He saved you if you're a Christian. And yeah, along with that, he blesses us in his kindness and his grace and his mercy. But those are not the reasons to say that you love God. Sincere love of God is loving him because of the great cost that he paid for you. And when you really love him, when you, when you really love him and you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, you will obey him with a with pure heart, with pure desires, with a pure motivation for love for him. Love God genuinely. Let love be genuine. Loving God genuinely will result in what it says next, hating, abhor, that's to hate, hating what is evil and holding fast to what is good. Evil being sin, what, does, what God hates, hating what is evil, hating sin and holding fast to what is good, the good being what is approved by God. So you hate what is evil, you hold fast to what is approved by God. And this idea gets back to Romans 12 too, the beginning. Being transformed by the renewal of your mind as you're holding fast to God's word. Whenever you are clinging to God's word, when you're reading God's word, you understand through his word what he hates, what he loves, and then you follow suit. So hating what is evil, holding fast to what is good. As you hate what is evil and cling to what is good, you will love God and others better. That is the outcome. If you hate evil and you love good, you'll treat others the way God desires. If you hate evil and you love good, you'll hate hypocrisy. You'll hate the lie that goes along with that, with disingenuine love. He says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Hating evil will result in you staying away from from harming others, from, from sinning against others. Genuine love of God and others will be evident in your life. There will be evidence because you're staying away from what is evil and you're holding fast to what is good. And the good is what is defined as good by God's word. And Paul moves on. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. So he says, let love be genuine. And then he moves on and he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. He's describing this genuine love. What does this genuine love really look like? He says, outdo one another with showing honor. Genuine love of others, it's demonstrated by having brotherly love. Now, this is interesting to me because I've got brothers. I have a sister too. I'm going to talk about my brothers for a second. And when I think of how do I show my brothers that I love them, we just make fun of each other and throw punches. That's what we do. And my brothers know that when I hit them, it's because I love them. And when I tell them that they're dumb or ugly, it's because I love them. So that's clearly not what Paul is getting at, right? He's not saying, yeah, no, that's not what he's saying. But what happens when someone else steps in and punches one of my brothers or calls one of my brothers ugly? After I say, yeah, good one, I'm going to defend them. I'm going to say, no, 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 You, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. I get to do that. That brotherly love, it it jumps at their defense. My brothers, and now I'll include my sister, they're my best friends. And I would do anything for them. Then they're downcast. When they're having a hard time, I, I want to encourage them. I want to build them up. When they're going through something difficult, I want to come alongside them and help them through it. I want to be there for them. I want to give them advice when they ask for it. 
I want, I want to be there for the big events in their lives. Like, I, I, want, I, just, I want to love them because I do love them. It's this brotherly affection. We have this close-knit love for each other, and that's the kind of love that we are to show one another. There's not a specific kind of love that you should reserve for certain people and then not give to others in that sense. The way that I love my siblings is the way that I should love everyone with this brotherly love, this brotherly affection. Because really, when you think about it, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in this room, brothers and sisters in Christ, think about this. The bond, the unity that we have is actually far deeper and far more serious than blood relatives. The unity by the Spirit that we have, it's, it's more than your blood relatives. So look around the room. I want you to do it. It's awkward, but look. Look around. Come on. These are the people that God calls you to love with brotherly affection. Brothers and sisters in Christ, love one another, love one another well, love genuinely. Are, are you loving well? Just, I want you just to think about it. It's, it's a simple thing. That just, are you loving well? Are you expressing love to the people in this room, to the people at your table? Are you expressing love to anybody at all? How well are you loving others? Are you displaying this genuine love that God's word describes? Or are there people in your life that you give yourself a pass on loving them? You know what I'm talking about. People in life where you just go, oh, it's really hard to love them. God understands. I'm not going to show them love. Maybe it's just because you think they're weird or they're different or you don't have common interests or, or, or whatever the case may be. That's not a reason to not show them this brotherly affection that God is calling us to do. He says, love with brotherly affection. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Words of Jesus. Love one another. People will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. Loving with genuine love. It shows that you are a follower of Christ. The love that we're talking about, it's the love that we are to show others, it's distinct. It's different than this, this common courtesy, this, this kindness that the world may show at times. It goes so far past and beyond that. The love that Christ expects and commands us to show to each other, it's so, it's so much further than that, that people should just be able to meet you and then come to the conclusion, you must follow Jesus because you are the ones that love that way. There's, some, there's this difference about you guys that anytime I meet a Christian, I just feel loved differently than when I'm talking to someone that, that says they're not a Christian. It's different. It's distinct. That's the way. We're to love others, love others so well that people just go, yeah, okay, yeah, you, you must be, you must be a Christian because of how well you're loving me. Even, we even just met and I can tell that you, you have love and care for me. And he says, outdo one another in showing honor. To honor, that's to have high respect, to have great esteem for each other. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing respect. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's showing honor to other people. 
it's not actually a competition, right? It's just outdo one another. We shouldn't be going, oh, I'm better at you. I'm, I'm going to show honor. You know, that's not the point. The point is, it, it should, you should just do it. It should be a big part of your life is showing honor, of, of being humble. When you walk into the room, your thought should never be, where's the best seat? I'm going to find that for myself. I'm going to get the best food. I'm going to get the best this. I'm going to get first. It's all about me. That should not be the demeanor of Christians. That should not be our attitude. Count others more significant than yourselves. Look out for what they need first. Love people that way in humility. It's an arrogant thing to walk around all the time thinking, I'm going to get what's best for me first. And then maybe I'll look and I'll, 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 maybe I'll help someone else. I mean, it should be our default position as Christians to say, how, how can I help? What do you need? In humility, put others first. So Paul makes this clear. There's a lot said there, and I'm going there's to, a, there's a lot packed in these verses. So these points, I'm trying to just summarize the, the main point of what he's getting at. I think it'll make sense after I tell you the first point. Point number one, love genuinely. Love others without hypocrisy. Make sure that your love for God is genuine, that you're not play-acting, that you don't have any ulterior motives. Hate what God hates. Love what God loves. Love others with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love genuinely. Verse 11 It says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Zeal, zeal is great energy and great enthusiasm. Having great energy about something, that's that's being zeal. So what's the saying? Do not be lazy in regards to zeal. Don't be lethargic. Don't be lazy. Do not have low energy. Do not be apathetic. Do not be dull. Do not be half-hearted. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Anything your hands touch, anything that you do, work with all your might. This doesn't just mean physicality, your might. This means your mind, your body, everything that you have to give. Do it with all your might. Do not be slothful in zeal. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, you know what that word whatever means? Whatever, everything, anything that you're doing, anything that you're involved in, work heartily with your whole heart, with, with everything that you are. Not halfway, Not in laziness, nothing like that. Work heartily as for the Lord. You're working for the Lord. That should be our our mindset about work, about things that we're involved in. Yes, you work for men, you have a boss, you get paid, all all of that. But ultimately, what you're doing is for the Lord. He's given you the ability to work He's given you the grace and his kindness and all these things. So whenever, we, whenever we're thinking about work, that's, that's why we shouldn't be lazy. You're not being a good steward with the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. Work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. Everything you do. I want you just to think about this for a second. Imagine that God showed up and, and, he, and he asked you face to face, can you go cut my grass? Would you, would you even think about slacking off? I know that's, like, that's dumb, okay, but just bear with me. Would you even think about doing a half job? I mean, if, if he was like, can you, go, can you do this for me? Be like, yeah, it'll be the best yard I've ever cut in my life. It'll be, the, it'll be great. It'll be awesome. It's because you asked me to do that. 
So when he says, work heartily as for the Lord, why, why is it any different? Why do we make excuses and say, oh, it's fine if I only give half of myself here, half of myself there, I'm lazy today, whatever. Why? I mean, that's not okay. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Fervent is passionate intensity. It's this idea of boiling, boiling up. This is the opposite of slothful in zeal. It's the complete opposite. Being fervent in spirit, being passionate about what your hands find to do. So fervent is this idea of a, of a pot full of bubbling water over a flame. Have you ever seen that? You ever put like water or cooked something over a flame and it's like bubbling up and over and it's running over? You know what I'm talking about? That's fervency. So your zeal and your energy and your passion for whatever it is that you're doing, it needs, it's, it's bubbling up and overflowing because you're so passionate about what your hand is finding to do. Now, these principles do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. These are, these are true for anything in life, like we've already established, whatever you're doing, okay? But what Paul has in view here specifically comes at the end of that verse. He, he says, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That's what he has in view mainly, is your service to the Lord. Now another place that this phrase, fervent in spirit, is used in the Bible is in Acts chapter 18 to describe Apollos. And here's what it says. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. So Apollos, he modeled this fervency in spirit, this fervency, this passion to serve the Lord because he was passionate about sharing the gospel, about teaching about Christ, about serving him. Look, it says he spoke and taught accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. That means he didn't even understand Christ's baptism. When, when Christ came, he, he didn't even get it. He didn't have the full picture. He didn't know. He didn't know he was missing anything. But the point is, he didn't even understand. But he was still fervent in spirit, in teaching, and sharing, and loving, and serving, and, and doing all, all of these things. He was the model for that. Being fervent in spirit. He wasn't lazy in zeal. He didn't have any excuses with this. He didn't just keep all of that knowledge in his head. Now, once Christ, you know, once Paul came along and taught him properly, it, it only magnified his ministry and his service and his zeal and his fervency for the Lord. It wasn't like he came and he got all this knowledge and then he was just like, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. I'm going to keep that up here. Fervent in spirit. He was enthusiastic about serving God. Now, hopefully after last week, talking about gifts, how can you serve God? Hopefully some of you guys have been seriously praying about this. Saying, God, I want to serve. How can I serve? What are my gifts? Now we have, don't be slothful in zeal. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Be enthusiastic about serving God. So first of all, I just want to ask, are, are, you, are you serving at all? I'm not just talking about like at church, like kidsmen or what. I'm talking just like, is your, is your life being lived in service to God at all? Because it should be. And then we can talk about serving and the bridge or church or, or anything else, but heed Paul's warning. Don't be lazy. You need to have passion about, about serving God, about loving God. So point two, serve God enthusiastically. Serve him with enthusiasm, with zeal, being fervent in spirit. Verse 12 
It says, rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. To rejoice is to be joyful. It's to show great joy and great delight. Okay, rejoice in hope. Got it. What's the hope? What's the hope? The hope of what? It's the hope of Christ's return and our complete redemption. The hope of what is to come. The hope that we have in Christ of what is to come. Christ's return, our complete redemption. As a Christian, one day you'll be made completely like Christ. You understand how amazing that is? That's, that's coming for Christians. That's, that's coming for us. And that's, that gives us hope. We need to rejoice in this hope. No more sin. One day there will be no more sin for us. There will be no more shame. There will be no more pain and heartache. I mean, that gives me hope. Above all that, though, you will enjoy the presence of Jesus for all eternity. The presence of Christ will be in his presence for all eternity. Yeah, other things are great. No more sin, no more shame. Those are great. But we will be in the presence of Christ, enjoying him for eternity, worshiping him for eternity. It's the hope. The hope that we have in this hope, it's not, it's not an earthly hope. Whenever you're hoping for something on earth, there's always a chance that it won't happen. Here's an example. Right now, I'm currently hoping that the Warriors knock out the Lakers from the NBA playoffs. That's what, I, that's what I'm hoping for, okay? There's a chance it won't happen. <laughs> I mean, I'm not guaranteed, you know? There's a chance it's not going to happen. Well, the hope that we have in Christ, this hope we have in Christ, it has no uncertainty. You understand the difference there? We can hope for all types of things in the earth. I hope that I get a job. I hope this. I hope that. I hope that. Maybe it won't happen. But whenever he says rejoice in hope, when, when the Bible talks about Christ being your living hope, it's certain. We don't have to sit back and wonder if this is going to happen. It's certain. It's going to happen. It's just not here yet. You have no reason to doubt this because God's word says that this hope that we have in Christ, it was secured by Christ. Secured. He secured it through his resurrection. He is our hope. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's our living hope. Rejoice in the hope. Rejoice in hope. The hope of the future inheritance. Hoping in this. It should provide joy in your life right now. That's why he says rejoice in this hope. Thinking and pondering over the hope that we have in Christ. The promise that we have in Christ. It should cause us to be joyful There should be no such thing as a hopeless Christian. You will have times of pain and sorrow. I, I wish I could say that you, that you won't. I wish that I could take it from you, but I can't. You will have times of pain and sorrow and heartache. But it should never result in hopelessness. I know it's hard to think about. I know it's hard to think because I know that there are many circumstances. I know that you've walked through things that have left you feeling hopeless. I know that. There's, there's so many things that can happen in life that are sorrowful. There's, there's sickness and death and suffering. and there, it, There's terrible things that might happen. There's so many things that can go wrong. And like I said, I know that some of you have walked through very serious and very difficult times in your life and I know that the hopelessness can feel so real so I'm not downplaying the realness of the feeling I, I, I understand I know at times you may look at your life you may look at what's happening immediately around you and you may go what, what's what's left to hope and there's no there's no hope well that's why you have to think about life eternally if you're looking at what's happening around you here on earth and you have this tunnel vision about what's happening right now, yeah, 
Life can appear hopeless at times. But focusing on the hope you have in Christ can make you joyful even in the hardest and most difficult circumstances that life will throw at you. You guys know the verse Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what Paul was talking about. He wasn't talking about Christ will give me strength to win my basketball game. He was saying, I've been through the lowest of lows. I've been through some terrible situations. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have to imagine that Paul, when he was in prison, he was getting stoned. He could have, he could have had that tunnel vision and said, well, well there's, there's no hope for me. I'm going to die. They're going to cut my head off. And they did. But he never lost his hope because nothing can take it away from you. Nothing and no one can take away the hope that you have in Christ because he secured it. And this hope, it's one that only Christians have. No one else, no other religion, no other people group has this hope. And thinking about that helps you realize just how hopeless life is without Christ. I want you to think about this. When you're at your lowest moment, whatever that may be, you still have all the reason in the world to be rejoicing because of the hope that you have in Christ. But people who don't have Christ, what is there to hope in? I think that should break our hearts. And that should cause us and spur us on to be sharing about this hope, this assurance that we can have in Christ. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Other translations say perseverance in tribulation. Be patient, persevere in tribulation. The, the instinctual reaction, right? Just the reaction that is just instinct for us whenever we go through trials is to be upset. Say, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's going on? I wish this wouldn't be happening right now. But God says to be patient. And to trust him through the trial. Patient in tribulation. First Peter 4.19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When you suffer, God has not lost control. At your darkest, most sorrowful moment that you've ever been in, God did not lose control. He will forever and he will always be sovereign and nothing will change that. And this is hard for us to think about. It's, this is difficult. But when you suffer... God has allowed it to happen in his providence. It says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's why Peter could write that. It's, it's according to his providence. So most likely, you will never understand why suffering is happening. So asking why, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong thing for us to ask God. But you can always trust that when you are suffering, God has not been removed from his throne. When suffering comes, you have to entrust yourself to our faithful God. And I love this word, entrust. It's actively putting yourself in the care of God's hands. Entrusting, it's, it is active. It's, it's in the moment. It's, 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 this, it's this idea, this it's rolling with the punches. So when sufferings come, what you're doing is, is they're just rolling off of you and you're casting it onto God. Going through a hard time and you're saying, yes, God, this isn't good, but I'm trusting you. This is really, really difficult, but I'm gonna trust you because you are still good. You are still on your throne. This doesn't mean that you're not in control. This doesn't mean that you don't love me. This doesn't mean those things. So God, it's, it's hard right now, but I'm gonna trust you. 
I'm going I'm to be patient. I'm going to wait on you. That's what your word says to do. You're trusting that he is still good even though your situation isn't good. Remaining patient in tribulation, it, it really builds from that first thing that he said. Rejoicing in hope. Remaining patient in tribulation. So, so as you are remaining joyful in hard times by concentrating on the hope of Christ, it will help you to be patient in your trials. So as the trials are coming, and you're saying, I haven't lost hope. I still have the greatest hope, the greatest promise that anyone could ever make. I still have that. I may not have what I lost, but I still have that. And because I still have this hope, I will remain joyful in the midst of this tribulation, in the midst of this trial, I will remain joyful. I may have talked to you guys and, and told you this story before. I think I told it to the Nero the other day, but I'll tell it again. In 2017, uh, both of my grandfathers passed away of cancer, like three months apart from each other. I lost them both. In the same year, I was really difficult. Um, I had a lot of friends that, that cared for me. And, and they had good motivations and good intentions with what they were saying to me. But I heard this a lot. I heard, I heard this a lot. I, I heard, hey, Jacob, everything works together for the good. So don't forget to look for the good in this. Don't forget that that there's something good going on and you just need to find it. And if you find the good, then, then that'll help you. I was like, I know the verse they're quoting. I've, I'd heard it before. But I, all that I could hear was, are you telling me that it's good that my grandfathers are dead? What good? Death is not good. What do you mean? Is it good that my grandmothers are, are alone? That they're widows and they don't have anyone to care for? Is that good? What's good about this? And I'm telling you, so many people with good intentions, shared this advice with me, but it didn't help. At the time, I, I was, I must have been a sophomore. Yeah, a sophomore in college, and I was taking a, a class on the book of Romans. And, and we got to this point, Romans eight twenty eight. I know, I'm sorry, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And I'm not, I'm not lying. I, my eyes rolled when we got to this because I was like, here we go again. I don't understand. I, want, I need somebody to explain what you're talking about. I don't get it. And then my professor, Dr. Smith, he said, you know, the most harmful thing that well, -inten well good intentions can do is try to help someone and quote verse 28, but not verse 29. And when he said that, I was like, okay, <laughs> please continue. Romans twenty eight twenty nine says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first, firstborn among many brothers. The good that God's word is talking about is you being made more like Jesus. No, it's not good that people are dying. It's not good that you're suffering. That is not a good thing. But for those who God has called, according to his purpose, for, for Christians, something good is going on, and the good is that you're being made more like Christ. So when you suffer, you have to suffer with eternity in mind. No, the situation isn't good, but God is working in you for a good outcome. Being made more like Jesus. So as troubles come, and they will come, the proper way to deal with it is to be patient. To keep entrusting yourself into the caring and loving hands of God and trust that he's up to something good. And the good is you being made more like Christ. 
And there's, there's truly nothing better than that. You becoming more like Jesus. That's, that's, that's our goal. That's what we want. That's what we should want as Christians. Then that verse closes with, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Being constant in prayer is, is being in a constant state of dependence on the Holy Spirit. Constant in prayer is constantly saying, God, I'm depending on you, God. I'm not depending, I'm not looking for anything in myself to help me here. I'm depending on you. Being constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, you know this verse. Pray without ceasing. Pray throughout your day. When something comes up, take it straight to God. Hard situation at work. Straight to God. You hear about someone in need, straight to God. You're overwhelmed, pray to God. When you're sick, when you're tired, when something's wrong, pray to God. Be constant in prayer. Pray persistently. Pray regularly. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Whatever your requests are, whatever is going on, whatever is happening, be constant in prayer. Be taking it before the Lord. Be depending on the Holy Spirit for help. Number three, think eternally. Think eternally. Again, we cannot have tunnel vision and be so hyper-focused on what's happening here. When you, when you are patient in tribulation, when you're rejoicing in hope, in, in being constant in prayer, thinking with eternity in mind will help with these things. When you're being hopeful, you're thinking of eternity. This is what's coming. This is my eternity. And that's going to help you to be patient. And whenever you're being constant in prayer, it's the same thing. You're saying, God, eternity is in my mind. Help me. This situation isn't good. I need, I need help. Help me here. Being dependent on him. So that's number three. Think eternally. And I hope that point makes sense. Verse 13, last verse. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. God expects for his people to be actively meeting the needs of other Christians. That's what he means by the saints, other Christians. So whatever the need may be, you should be contributing towards it. 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So if you have the resources to meet a need, you should meet the need. If you have the resources to meet the need of a brother and sister in Christ, you should be jumping to meet the need. Is it money? If you have money to give, help. Give. Is someone lonely? Embrace them. Does someone just need help, need counseling? Give them your ear. Give them your time. If something is, is somebody need a ride to the bridge? Help them. Contribute to the needs. But what needs to happen first is for Christians to be open about what their needs are. You've got to be open about what's going on. Be open about what your needs are. Of all places, think about all the places that you gather, that you're at you know, throughout your week. This should be the place of all places that you find your needs met. But if that's going to happen... That happens by us being honest and saying, hey, I've got a need. I, I need help. Not being embarrassed. It's, it's, not, it's not embarrassing to need help. Everybody at some point needs help. It's not, it's not embarrassing. I know it can feel like it, but it's, it's not embarrassing. It's not an embarrassing thing. This should be the place that you can come and be honest about these things, and it should be the place where you can find people that are willing and eager to contribute to the needs of the saints. And he says, and show hospitality. Hospitality, being 
kind, being generous, showing kindness. This is sharing your life with other people, sharing your home, your family, your food, your privacy, your time, your money. And this is not just towards those that you're closest to. It's easy to show hospitality towards people that you're already close to. But really, this, is, this means we should be showing hospitality to even strangers. Now, I'm not saying you need to just open up your door and say, come on in, whoever wants to come. That's not what I'm saying. But you have to be hospitable towards everyone. Kind towards everyone. Embracing everyone. And it was hard, it was hard for me to think about this. Like when I was you know, in high school and college, and it was hard for me to think, okay, how can I be hospitable if I've got like five roommates and I don't want people at my house? Because it's gross. It's, not, it's a dirty place. I didn't like it. How can I be hospitable if I don't actually own my home? You know, we need to separate hospitality from the home. It doesn't just mean your home. This is an an attitude. It's a mindset. It's all of these things. I mean, to show hospitality, take people to lunch and pay for their meal. When new students come to the bridge, receive them with open arms. Make them feel welcome. There should never be a new student coming to the bridge standing alone, sitting alone. That just should not happen. Show hospitality. And then, Loving people well, caring for their needs. I mean, if you just use your imagination, you can think of so many ways to show hospitality to others. And Christians, we need to be doing these things. So number four, live generously. Live generously. Now this is just the beginning of Paul's list of his thorough description of a transformed life. Love genuinely, Serve God enthusiastically. Think eternally. Live generously. Let's pray. God, please help us to understand these exhortations in your word. Help us to understand and and to know how it is that we can live these things out, how we can be obedient to you. God, please help us love well. Help us to love genuinely, to be sincere in our love for other people. Help us to not be acting, to be fake, to be hypocrites, Lord. Help us to repent of all of that. Help us to love others well. God, as as we're thinking about serving Help us to serve you with zeal, with passion. Don't let us be lazy. Don't let us be half-hearted in anything. Let us serve you with enthusiasm, God. Help us to think eternally. God, as we're walking through difficult times in life, help us to always remain steadfast and to be rejoicing in the hope that we have in Christ. grateful for you. We we were thankful for you, for what you've done for us, for your salvation. We love you, praise you, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us, for how you love us. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.